When I first sat down to outline this first season of the podcast, I knew that there would be some difficult things that needed to be discussed. And so far, most of those difficult things has been about the nature of warfare. We've talked about the European settlements, the conflicts between the French, the English, and the Spanish, and their native allies and enemies along the way. Thus far, we've talked about the Enlightenment, and the Great Awakening, but there's one institution that I briefly touched on in the last episode, and that is the institution of slavery in colonial America. Now, before I get started, I do want to let you know that there are going to be some historical texts, writings, letters that I'm going to be reading in this podcast. And those texts, letters, writings have words that are not so friendly to today's society. So bear that in mind as we are talking about this historical period in colonial America. In the last episode, I talked about the Asiento contract, or the devil's bargain that opened the transatlantic slave trade to North and South America around 1500. Interestingly, when we are talking about the British American colonies, the colonies that will rebel against the crown and whose citizens will become the founders of the United States, the first time that we know of black slaves coming into the British American colonies is in the report of Jamestown colonist John Rolfe around 1619. Those of you familiar with the story of Pocahontas may have heard that name as John Rolfe was her husband. In a report given to the treasurer of the Virginia Company, Rolf remarked that a Dutch frigate or warship called the White Lion bartered for 20 and odd Negroes in exchange for victuals and supplies. Though much has been said about the year 1619, historians know that slaves had been in North America for nearly a century before landing at Jamestown. In this episode, we're going to talk about a period of North American slavery that historian Ira Berlin has classified as the Charter Generations. Now, this is a period in American history rarely discussed, but we're going to talk about how the institution of slavery evolved in the 270 plus years before the Declaration of Independence how the colonies started as societies with slaves or a socioeconomic order in which slaves were a small minority of the population, in which slavery was one of several systems of labor, and how these colonies evolved into slave societies, in which slavery was the principal form of labor and slaves constituted a substantial portion of the population. This is part one of a two-part series on this charter generations period of slavery. In this episode, we discuss the very beginning of the transatlantic slave trade, how slavery was introduced to North America, and what groups were affected in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. In part two, we're going to discuss some of the uprisings that happened during this period and how the colonies began to codify slavery into law.
encomienda, the first system of slavery. I also want to preference that Spanish is not my native tongue, so please bear with me as I attempt to pronounce some of these Spanish names or terms. We all know that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and soon after the Spanish began to settle in North and South America, about a century before the British. After establishing Hispaniola, or present-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic, the Spanish first planned to hold the indigenous people for labor under a system they had practiced since the Roman Empire. This system was known as encomienda, a Spanish labor system that paid conquistadores with the labor of conquered non-Christian peoples. I say non-Christian people because the first time we see this system is during the Reconquista, when the kingdoms of Spain and Portugal, Christian kingdoms, waged war against the Muslim Moors of the 8th century up until 1492, coercing the Moors into encomienda for centuries. Now, the indigenous people held under encomienda were not traditional chattel slaves. Their servitude was paid, though grossly underpaid, and they did have a few rights, one being that they could take their managers to trial. They were also cared for by the person in charge of them, the encomendado, which included providing them with benefits of Christian civilization that the Spaniards perceived as beneficial. The conquistadors for whom the labor worked, in theory, gave them perks such as military defense and education. Now for a time, the Spanish encomienda was successful. However, the indigenous people were not easily conquered, and they were susceptible to the diseases that the Spanish had brought with them, causing a great death among the indigenous population. The Spanish quickly realized that the native people were dying in droves from disease. They also found that the natives clearly knew the land better than they did, therefore could escape, making it very difficult to enslave them. So around 1500, the Spanish switch gears. And instead of trying to enslave or coerce the indigenous people in Hispaniola into encomienda, they began to convert them to Catholicism. Now, in a letter from King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella to Nicholas Ovando, one of the first political leaders to oversee the transatlantic slave trade in the Americas, they began to allow black slaves of African descent to be imported to Hispaniola, writing, because with great care we have produced the conversion of the Indians to our holy Catholic faith, and furthermore, if there are still people there who are doubtful of the faith in their own conversions, it would be a hindrance to them, and therefore we will not permit nor allow to go there to the Americas Moors, nor Jews, nor heretics, nor reconciled heretics, nor persons who are recently converted to our faith, except if they are black slaves or other slaves that have been born under the dominion of our natural Christian subjects. Now, the Spanish aristocracy felt that the converts, heretics, and people of other religions would harm the Native Americans' conversion to Catholicism. However, they did permit slaves of sub-Saharan African descent if they were born in Spain or one of Spain's other colonies. Now, this is the first known example 
of Europeans transporting black slaves across the Atlantic as labor in the New World. An agreement between the Spanish crown and Ovando in 1501 allowed for the potential that some transported over the Atlantic might not be of African ancestry. But after 1502, all correspondence between Ovando and the Spanish solely refer to slaves as Negroes or Blacks. In the beginning, Ovando rejected the transatlantic slave trade. Some of the first slaves who came to Hispaniola swiftly fled into the mountains and started conducting raids against Spanish villages. Ovando even requested that the transatlantic slave trade be outlawed in 1503, claiming that if more black slaves escaped, they may encourage the Native Americans to full scale uprising. And Ovando was right. In 1519, Enriquillo's revolt began on the island and lasted until 1533. Almost a hundred years before African captives arrived in Jamestown, the first black slaves arrived on mainland North America in 1526. They were brought to Spanish Florida with the founding of San Miguel de Guadalupe, located along present-day Georgia's coast. They were brought by the colony's founder, Lucas Vasquez de Ayon. The enslaved overthrew the colony in less than two months by insurrection and mingling with native populations. Additional black slaves arrived in Florida with Hernando de Soto in 1539 and with Florida's establishment of St. Augustine in 1565. Each enslaved African who landed in the Americas was referred to as Pieza de Indias, or a piece of the Indies. To control the traffic of slaves, the monarchy granted asientos, or licenses, to traders. The Spanish colonies were the largest purchaser of slaves in the 16th century, accounting for several thousand sales. But other European colonies would soon surpass these figures as their demand for slave labor propelled the slave market to record highs. Not all slaves were of African ancestry, and those that were of African descent were not solely African. Historian Ira Berlin is responsible for the term Atlantic Creoles, which more accurately describes this first group of transatlantic slaves. African nations like Nigeria and Angola saw the arrival of Europeans, primarily the Portuguese, starting in the 15th century. Quickly, cultural admixing and dissemination took place, and an early Atlantic Creole culture started to emerge. Juan Garrido and Juan Valiente were two of these people who traveled alongside Europeans during the late 15th and early 16th centuries as they explored colonized and settled the Americas. Up to the end of the 17th century, Atlantic Creoles were part of what historian Ira Berlin referred to as the charter generation in the Chesapeake colonies. Blacks and white laborers commonly worked off passages as indentured servants during the first century of colonization, since the color-coded caste system really didn't become established until later. 
Captives were less segregated than they would be later. The working class coexisted. Many white women and black men formed romantic connections. Some of these white Europeans were also captives forced into the colonies, as the practice of forcing convicts to the US colonies from Britain was also going on. Many of the new generation of Creoles born in the colonies were the offspring of West African-born, bound or captive workers and European indentured servants. There's also been a lot of debate on whether Jamestown was really the first British settlement to have black slaves. Could slaves have been brought to Roanoke? By 1585, the English had already been late to the party. The Spanish and the French had been settling and trading among the natives for nearly a century by the time Sir Walter Riley established the soon-to-be-failed colony of Roanoke, Virginia. There has been much debate among historians if black slaves were brought to Roanoke. The story goes that by June of 1585, the colonists who were already starving and in pretty bad shape had contacted a fleet commanded by Sir Francis Drake, who was on his way back to England from a successful campaign against the Spanish in Santo Domingo and Cartagena and St. Augustine. During these raids, it is believed that Drake had acquired refugees, supplies, and slaves with the intent to deliver them to his friend Walter Riley's colony Roanoke upon one of Drake's ships, the Francis. However, a hurricane hit the Outer Banks, sweeping the Francis out to sea. After the storm, the leader of Roanoke persuaded his men to evacuate the colony, and Drake agreed to take them back to England. Because the colony was abandoned, it is unclear what became of the black slaves and refugees Drake may have meant to place there. There is no record of them arriving in England with the fleet, and it is possible Drake left them on Roanoke with some of the goods he had previously set aside, or maybe they never made it onto the boat. I, we really don't know. But the mystery of Roanoke is a different episode entirely, and let me know in the comments if that is an episode you would like to see. When the Virginia Company years later, sets out to establish Jamestown, many historians have tried to link the British settlement with the intention from the beginning to establish slavery. But I just don't think that that shapes out. I think that when the Virginia Company sets out to establish Jamestown, it's pretty clear that their first goal was not to set up these grand plantations and produce any significant commercial agriculture. No. In fact, historian Betty Wood, in her book Slavery in Colonial America, 1619 to 1776, she explains the Virginia Company set out on three main ways in which it hoped to make money from its colony. First, and continuing in the vein of 16th century thinking about the Americas, the company believed that lucrative trading connections could be forged with native peoples who would be keen to deal furs and skins for a variety of English goods. I mean, after all, the French had been somewhat successful in their fur trade with the natives, at least thus far. Second, following the Spanish example, but reflecting its ignorance of the local environment, the company insisted that, with or without the help of the local inhabitants, gold and other precious metal would soon be discovered in Virginia. 
third, they held out hope that the waterways of the Chesapeake region would lead the settlers to the Pacific Ocean and a money-making trade with the Orient. Well, <laughs> the Virginia Company did not find gold. Not only did they not find gold, they also didn't find a trade route with Asia. And trading with the native inhabitants wasn't as profitable as they hoped it would be. Ironically, in the spring of 1619, just as the Dutch man of war had traded the 20 enslaved blacks to the Virginia settlers, this was precisely at the point when tobacco was beginning to generate an enormous profit for the Virginia company. Given their labor requirements and the money they were making from tobacco, it might have seemed logical for Virginia's tobacco planters to have seized upon the opportunity provided by the arrival of the Dutch man of war in 1619 and look to Western and Central Africa for the workers they wanted. But they did not. Africans remained demographically and economically insignificant in the Chesapeake until the last quarter of the 17th century. And there were several reasons why this was so. The early 17th century was a time of the Dutch dominating the transatlantic slave trade. And truthfully, the Dutch saw no economic benefit in spending the time and resources to send vessels packed with human cargo to Virginia. While Virginia may have been making money in tobacco, it was not enough to pull the Dutch from the more profitable regions of Brazil and the Caribbean. Not only that, but Virginia itself was still a vulnerable colony. And for the Dutch, there was no guarantee or assurance that they would find buyers for slaves in Virginia. Virginia also didn't have the infrastructure, so to say, to facilitate a slave market, at least not yet. According to historian Alan Taylor in his book, American Colonies, The Settling of North America, he writes, in the early 1600s, slaves were too expensive to risk and few newcomers, either black or white, survived more than five years. Given the short life expectancy of all Chesapeake laborers, planters wisely preferred to buy English indentured servants for four or five years, rather than purchase the more expensive lifelong slaves from the Dutch. By 1650, enslaved Africans numbered 300, a mere 2% of the Chesapeake population. Allen goes on to write that the English servants composed at least three quarters of the immigrants to the Chesapeake during the 17th century, about 90,000 of the 120,000 total. Too poor to afford the six pound cost of a transatlantic passage, the servants mortgaged four to seven years of their lives to a ship captain or merchant who carried them to the Chesapeake for sale to tobacco planters. Before 1620, these indentured servants were criminals or unwanted orphans, punished for vagrancy or petty theft. For decades, Virginia had a steady flow of indentured servants willing to gamble their lives in a dangerous land of hard work and deadly diseases rather than die in abject poverty in England, where there were no opportunities and absolutely no way out of their desperate situation. Until the 1670s and 1680s, the willingness of English people to emigrate to the Chesapeake as indentured servants dovetailed perfectly with the labor needs of the tobacco industry. But in many cases, the life of an indentured servant 
was much more dangerous and short-lived than lifelong chattel slavery. Indentured servants endured very harsh, short lives in the Chesapeake. If they survived their contracted term, they would be given freedom dues in Virginia and Maryland, which meant 50 acres of land. Unfortunately though, most indentured servants did not survive. Having staked their health in pursuit of farms, most lost their gamble, finding graves before their term expired. Despite the importation of 15,000 indentured servants between 1625 and 1640, Virginia's population increased by only 7,000. The servants died from a combination of diseases and overwork as the extremes of the Chesapeake environment shocked English bodies unused to the milder pathogens, insects, and climate of their rainy and temperate homeland. The intense labor of tobacco cultivation peaked with the blistering sun, soaring temperatures, thick humidity, and voracious mosquitoes of the long, hot Chesapeake summer. It was in the interest of the planters to keep his human chattel alive. It was also in his interest to extract as much work as possible before their term expired. Planters resorted to the whip, convinced that only fear and pain could motivate servants, whom they considered loose, vagrant people, vicious and destitute of all means to live. Until their terms expired, the servants were property rather than people. Just like chattel slavery, it was common for masters to buy and sell the contracts of their servants. Some masters even transferred servants to pay gambling debts. There were no rights for indentured servants. With their masters being wealthy planters, usually the county courts sided with masters accused of denying and clothing their servants or of inflicting brutal punishments. Even when servants died, the court preferred to exonerate the master. In his book, Taylor goes on to write a gruesome tale involving one such indentured servant. In 1624, Elizabeth Abbott succumbed to beatings inflicted by her master. A witness saw Abbott's body full of sores and holes, very dangerously wrinkled and putrefied, both above her waist and upon her hips and thighs. Deeming the beatings necessary, the court dismissed the case. Although her master had previously killed another servant with a rake and with impunity, in many cases the court disciplined defendant servants by extending their indentured time. If an indentured servant dared to run away, if apprehended, their servitude would be extended at least double the length of their absence, and sometimes five times the length of their absence. If you were a woman who bore a child while under servitude, you had to compensate your master for medical expenses and lost work time by serving an additional two years. By the 1670s and 1680s, several conditions in Britain and the Chesapeake would cause Virginia's labor force to shift from being heavily dependent on indentured white laborers to being equally heavily dependent on enslaved Native American and Black workers.
When it comes to slavery among the Native Americans, there are differences between slavery as practiced in the pre-colonial era among the Native Americans and slavery as practiced by Europeans after colonization. For centuries, Native American people took slaves from other Native American groups that they deemed ethnically inferior. Now, a lot of times that doesn't mean that they were practicing chattel slavery, so to speak. And the word slavery may not be an accurate application to some of the captive people that they had enslaved. In some cases, Native Americans would allow captive people to live on the fringe of tribal society until they could integrate them slowly into their tribe. It's important to remember that the Native Americans are not a unified group of people. They have their own cultures, customs, and traditions. That also meant capturing, selling, and buying slaves. A lot of times, Native American tribes would enslave war captives. Many of these prisoners of war were captured to replace warriors killed during a raid. War captives were sometimes made to undergo ritual mutilation or torture that could end in death. As part of spiritual grief rituals for relatives, slain in battle. Other times, war captives were adopted into the tribe. Adoptees were expected to fill the economic, military, and familiar roles of their departed loved ones, to fit into the societal shoes of the dead relative and maintain the spirit power of the tribe. Native tribes could also engage in some sort of indentured servitude. These would be instances where a group or tribe or an individual had nothing left to lose, so they would put themselves into servitude for a brief time or for life. During times of famine, some Native Americans would also sell their children into some form of servitude to another tribe in order to obtain food. That was also something that was common. So the Native Americans were really no stranger to the concept of slavery by the time the Europeans landed on their shores. In fact, some Native American tribes saw the Europeans' need for labor as another form of trade. They would sell their war captives to Europeans rather than integrate them into tribal society as they had done previously. Earlier, we discussed the Spanish began to use encomienda system as a way of enslaving Native peoples on Hispaniola. And though encomienda would end in the 1540s and the Spanish would begin to integrate the Black Atlantic Creoles into slave societies, that didn't mean that they stopped buying and selling Native American slaves. The Virginia Company, as I mentioned before, did not begin to engage in the African slave trade as much as the Spanish during those early years as the tobacco industry began to grow. And Virginia really didn't use Native American slaves as much either. But the same cannot be said for the Southern Carolina colonies. The Carolinas were the British American colony's cash cow. As the Carolinas began to grow and the southern colonies saw an explosion in the rice, indigo, and tobacco industry, they needed labor. And indentured servitude was not a system that could keep up with their demand. Historian Alan Galay estimates that between 1670 and 1715, 24,000 of the 51,000 captive Native Americans were exported through Carolina ports, of which more than half, 15,000 to 30,000, 
were brought from then Spanish Florida. These numbers were more than the number of Africans imported to the Carolinas during that same period. Galay also writes that the trade in Indian slaves was at the center of the English empire's development in the American South. The trade in Indian slaves was the most crucial factor affecting the South in the periods between 1670 to 1715. War captives gained through intertribal wars were sold to the English colonies, Florida, and Louisiana. Additionally, enslaved Native Americans were exported from South Carolina to Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. Starting in 1698, English Parliament allowed competition among importers of enslaved Africans, which raised the prices of slaves in Africa. So they cost more than enslaved Native Americans. And as white indentured servitude was disappearing, a Native American and black slavery was entering the colonies, the Virginia General Assembly defined some of the terms of slavery in 1705. They wrote, they codified all servants imported and brought into the country who were not Christians in their native country shall be accounted for and be slaves. All black person, mulatto, and Indian slaves within this dominion shall be held to be real estate. If any slave resists his master, correcting such slave and shall happen to be killed in such correction, the master shall be free of all punishment, as if such accident never happened. However, by the time the Virginia Assembly passed their slave code, Indian slavery was beginning to die out in the British American colonies. The laws were really devised to establish a greater level of control over the rising African slave population of Virginia. It also socially segregated poor white colonists from black enslaved persons, making them desperate groups and hindering their ability to unite. The unity of the commoners was a perceived fear of the Virginia aristocracy, which had to be addressed. I hope you enjoyed part one of Slavery in Colonial America, and I will see you in part two where we will continue this discussion. For the list of all the books and all of my show notes for this episode, please go to www.historicalus.com. And remember, we're taking a little bit of a break from History Hour as we are on school break right now, at least I am. So I will be in and out kind of traveling, which makes it really difficult to schedule um, history hour. So we are taking a little bit of a hiatus there, but we will be back um, after this summer. 